Mother Knows Death presents External Exams with Nicole and Jemmy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mother Knows Death. This week's episode, this external exam that we're doing, is we're going to be talking about stalking. We talked last week about Taylor Swift's stalker in New York City, and I told you about a personal case that I know, a friend of mine named Amy Harwick, who was killed by a domestic violence situation and, of course, stalking. I first had met Amy back in 2016. She was here visiting Philly because she was from around this area with a friend of ours, Dr. Paul Kunaris. And we had texted back and forth a couple of times. We were planning to meet up and everything once she came back to Philly to visit. And then I saw the terrible news one day that she was murdered. And I was I was just completely surprised. I texted Paul right away. And it just was really crazy. I knew this girl. She was so, she was beautiful, talented, smart. Um, she just had the world going for her from my perspective. And I didn't know that she was battling all of this stuff behind closed doors. And we really just need to bring awareness to stalking and everything because it's just so important. And I'm going to read you some statistics of how it really impacts a lot of people's lives. And it's not just women. It is more women than men, but it happens to men too. So a publication by the Bureau of Justice reported in 2019 that 3.4 million people were victims of stalking, but only 29% of them had actually reported it to police. And of those reports, 67% of them said that they feared being killed or being physically harmed. And now in relation to stalking and and how it goes along with domestic relationships nationwide 54 percent of female homicide victims reported stalking to police before they were killed by their partner so that's something that we need to talk about because that's more than half of the people that were killed had stalking involved in their case amy was killed on valentine's day night of 2020 so i thought since we we're approaching the four-year anniversary of her death she would be she was a huge fan of my work and i think that she would almost be honored that we were talking about her to try to bring awareness to a situation and today we're going to talk to amy's best friend so we can get an outside perspective of what it's like having a great friendship a relationship a family member someone that you love and that you're close to who's going through this and what it's like to go through it and maybe some of the warning signs that you would see so please welcome Amy's best friend, Robert Koshlin, to the show. Hi, Robert. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, Robert. So tell us a little bit about Amy and why she was so special. Well, Amy is a one in a million kind of person. And, you know, sometimes when you meet a person like Amy, you're just floored by how kind of like intense they are and in, a, in such a positive way. Like, she was the person that when she walked in the room, everyone would be so excited because Amy was here. She was just a, a happy, um, as I said, positive kind of presence in the room. But at the same time, she was super smart. She was super funny. And she was the kind of person that just would not hesitate to help you specifically in your career. So she was all about helping women. Uh, further their careers, their education. So if you were talking to her, especially if you're a woman, and you're like, oh, I'm thinking of doing this or I'm thinking of doing that, she would be like, oh, you definitely have to do that. And I'm going to connect you with someone I know over there. And, um, you know, let me know how it goes. I'm going to check in on you. And she just was the most supportive person to her friends and even to people she just met as, you know, strangers. Um because she was just really interested in um, seeing other people succeed. And I think because of that, that lifted her up too. So everyone just loved her. She was just, you know, she was beloved by friends and strangers alike. Anyone who met her was like, oh my God, my friend Amy, you met her, you were friends. And that's how it was. And, you know, she was my best friend and she was a lot of people's best friends. So she had, she was, she was close to a lot of people. Um, 
And, uh, but for me, she was somebody that like, I talked to all the time. She knew everything about me. We were together quite a lot. And, um, yeah, it's, she was just, she was a force, a force of nature to, to be reckoned with. And if she was, there was an obstacle, she could climb over that obstacle. She was great at just dealing with problems, even though it might stress her out. Um, but turning those problems into opportunities. How old was she when she died? She was 38. Um, she would have been 39 in April. And she wasn't, so she she died in California. She wasn't originally from California, correct? She she was from around my area? Yeah, she was from Lansdale, um, Pennsylvania, which is north of Philadelphia, like an hour. Um, and I'm from that general vicinity, too. We didn't know each other there. We met in California, though. Do you know why she moved to California? She met a guy in the band. Um, his name was Tommy. And um, they dated. And then he's like, come to California and let's get married. And they, you know, they got married and, and she came out to California. They had got had the marriage in California, um, which I only lately heard that there, there was like a monkey at the wedding and stuff like that. I was like, well, that sounds appropriate. But like, this was like 2001 or 2000 or something like that. And how did you meet Amy? I met Amy at a party. I was, it was a, uh, a pool party. And I was taking photographs of it. Like sometimes I'll bring my camera to parties and I do a lot of photography. So I'll shoot some photos. I hadn't gone in the pool yet, but um, a lot of people were in the pool. I walked into the kitchen and she was in the kitchen in a bikini. And I was like, oh, hey. And it was just the two of us. So we started talking and uh, she asked me if I did photography and she said she did some modeling. And I was like, oh, you know, um, are you going to go in the pool with a minute? And she's like, oh, I'm just stopping by. I'm on my way to work. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what kind of work do you do? And she's like, oh, I'm a go-go dancer. And uh, I just want to come by and say hello to some people. And um, I'm, I'm leaving for work. You know, it's, it was like midnight. She was on her way to work in a bikini. <laughs> so um, we uh, connected on Facebook, I think. And then we messaged a bit. And um, I guess I invited her to a Christmas party I had. And she responded via text. This is the first text I had from her. And I have all of the texts that she and I exchanged. I have uh, over 26 thousand texts that we exchanged and her first message was like, I can't come to your party. And my response was, who, who is this? <laughs> so, um, a couple months later, we did a photo shoot together. She came over my house and that's when we became really good friends. She brought a taxidermied wolf head, um, with her and I shot her, um, in my house. And then when I walked her out to her car, she had this like, um, taxidermy coconut crab in the back window of her car, which is a huge crab. I mean, it's like, it's like, like 18 inches in diameter, I'd say. I was like, oh my God, you've got a coconut crab. She's like, yeah, I think because it's been in the car, the sun's been wearing down on it. I think it's like kind of disassembling, but I was just like, oh my God, you're amazing. We need to be friends. So um, that's kind of when our friendship really took off. And that was in 2013, beginning of 2013. Okay, so you said, I, I had read on one of your Instagram posts that you guys were such good friends that you texted all day, and you said sometimes you even talked to her more than you were talking to your wife at the time. Oh, yeah, that was later. I mean, we in the beginning, when I first became friends with her, I'd see her maybe once a month or something like that, and we'd message, because it's like when you first meet people, you know, and she had a lot of people vying for her attention, and she gave everyone her attention, maybe also people that, you know, were not as um, good for her, but she, she was, one of those, she had a bit of a people pleaser uh, aspect in the very beginning when I first met her, that changed over time. Um, but in the last uh, years, like 2018, 19, 2020, we messaged every day. I talked to her at least once a day on the phone and I saw her sometimes like in 2019, I saw her a couple of times a week in 2020. And, um, you know, I, I'd go over her house, she'd stop by my house, sometimes just for like a few minutes or whatever, but we got together quite frequently, as many as like five times a week. So the person that the man that killed Amy, his name was Gareth Pursehouse. When did you first hear of his name from Amy? I think she mentioned him first to me around 2014. 
um, she had, she didn't really talk much about her past. And it was like over time that I'd learned things about her. So she'd always be pulling things out. I'd be like, wait, what? You know, and then she'd tell me this thing. So she had so much in her past, but she was always very focused on the present and the future. But she had mentioned that she had an uh, abusive boyfriend and she um, had told me once, for example, they had gotten in a fight um, and he hit her and uh, she called the police. When the police came, he convinced them to arrest her and said that she had attacked him. Um, and she ended up spending the night in jail and before like the police, after further questioning, decided actually he was the problem and then they picked him up instead. Um, she had told me that story once, um, but she didn't tell me that there was like an ongoing situation until 2014. She'd gone on a trip and when she came back, she called me and she's like, I think, you know, Gareth has uh, broken into my house and um, stolen all my photo albums and like turned some things upside down and stuff. And he also like, like, uh, like erased my computer. And I was like, well, you know, turn on your computer, tell me what you see. And in fact, yeah, her computer didn't even have an operating system on it. Didn't even have windows on it anymore. It was just like, so I was like, well, that does not normally happen in a, just overnight accidentally. Um, so I came over and, uh, you know, looked around and I told her she should get a webcam and stuff. Um, but she filed a police report, um, about it. And then we went to lunch and then she told me about other things that had happened with Gareth and kind of gave me a lot of the big rundown of, of her concerns about him and his ongoing like obsession with her, um, that he had, um, gotten her kicked off of jobs. So she had applied to be a, a family counselor at a prison and he, uh, she was in the final stages of interviews and he had been hacking into her email. I think when they were together, he had access to her computers and probably installed software on her computer and phone that he was able to kind of monitor what was going on because she, she felt like he was monitoring her. And he uh, sent uh, nude photos of her to the prison that, you know, um, person that was the hire, hiring person. And they ended up like denying the job. So she was really upset about that. But what she was able to do is really turn that around. So she had this job opportunity where she would have gone to literally work at a prison in somewhere in Nowheresville, California. And if she had taken that course of action, we all probably wouldn't know the Amy that we know today. Um, we, I probably would not have met her. I think, you know, all the things and wild things and interesting things she did probably would not have happened so much. She would have just been in a small town working at the prison, counseling families, which I think she would have found very satisfying. But because of what happened and, and the photos he sent were from Playboy, actually, she was really angry that, um, you know, because she had posed nude, somehow this was something that would affect how she could perform in her job at, you know, the prison. And she also recognized that this is a problem that a lot of women have, that they're judged uh, based on their sexuality or if they were nude. And it's, you know, she's like, this is really stupid. I don't think that this is something that should happen. So she decided to devote her work towards helping sex workers and people who have issues with things like that cope with dealing with being in a society where women are often judged just because of their sexuality. So that's when she decided because of what he did to go get a doctorate in human sexuality. So it kind of like this very upsetting thing that happened, really, she was able to turn into this course correction that really set the stage for all the success she had later in life. So that was probably really fueling his fire as well because he was trying to ruin her and kind of beat her down and instead he he enhanced her even more than she she was before yes every time every time he'd do something like she would be better on the other side even even now he's killed her and which is the most he can do he's gone to jail and everyone's still talking about amy yeah, you know, it, she, exactly. She's not able to like, you know, do all the great things that she was probably going to do, but we're still talking about her. Did she ever say when, because 
she was dating him prior to even meeting you. So you weren't really like around while they were currently dating. But did she say that that she loved him at all at any point? Or was it more of just she was kind of scared to get away from him because of the way that he was acting? Yeah, she so when I met her, which was in 2012, and then later we shot photos in 2013, she was just I think she had just broken up with him just before I met her. So it was it was like a very close uh, add on, but she didn't talk about him until 2014 to me. Um, She did tell me that in the beginning, she did love him. Um, But he became very controlling and um, very, uh, well, physically abusive eventually. And then then it was a question of being afraid of him, but she still did love him and that she thought that he would change because after a bad episode, he would become super sweet and apologetic and do all these nice things. And that's a pretty classic abuser uh, action. They are their horrible selves. And then they, because they're narcissists, typically, they then do all the work to win you back and convince you they're not going to be that way again until the next time. And that's a, that's that cycle. And people get addicted to the good times and think that that bad time is just a blip. And, you know, we can have these good times again, if only I do this or only I stop doing that or whatever. And that's how the control starts to happen. If I stop talking to my friends or what have you, and then things are good until there's some new infraction. And this is how people stay in these relationships. And ultimately how often people do get injured or killed. I have a friend who was in a relationship that they would get into really bad fights and then they would start pushing each other around and they'd have to call the cops. And it was always getting like that multiple times. But as her friend, I did tell her, you got to get away from this because this isn't normal. But at the same time, I never had a feeling that that guy was going to kill her. I just thought like they were just getting a little passionate during their fights. It happens to some people, whatever. I never feared like he was like weird and 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 was pushing it beyond the point of within this normal range of fighting or whatever. Do, when when do you think that happened for her that she became she was a she was an abused girlfriend to being like scared and thinking this guy's going to try to hurt me just thinking that he was acting weird like what would make her think that when she came into her apartment he was definitely the one that broke in and did this stuff to her well i knew that he you know she told me that he was obsessed with her and you know we continued to like try to message her or contact her or leave notes or whatever um i don't know that she ever thought that he would kill her and i think that in general we just don't that's outside of our imagination because it doesn't, that doesn't happen to us. It doesn't happen to our friends. It doesn't happen to people we know. It, it happens on TV. It happens on shows. And it's just so we don't think the way someone who kills somebody is thinking. And, you know, maybe they think that way all the time. And maybe it's just like, you know, they just gear up, you know, gear up and do it. But I, I knew that she was afraid that he might hurt her. Um, I don't know when that happened. I think when he broke into her apartment and did those things, which she assumed it was him just because of the weird nature of what happened, all her photo albums being taken and her computer being erased. I think she always described him as this like brilliant hacker. I don't really think that he was a brilliant hacker, but he was a programmer and he, you know, he, could, he knew how he knew how to get some software, but any, any programmer could do that. Um, but he, Going into her house, I think that's the first time she really started to worry about him. But then after that, um, things settled down. She got a new computer. She got a new phone. And I was like, he can't be hacking into your new computer or your phone. He has no access to it. So changed the locks on her door. But he he could pick locks. But she was always a little nervous about that. So, um, yeah. So I, I don't know at what point she was worried about him. But I think it started when he broke into her place. But then there were many years in, her, in the intervening years before she ran into him and then what happened, that he was probably behind a lot of online posts on these gossip websites and so forth. But there was a second person that was also stalking her, which was the next um, 
girlfriend. And this person and Gareth often would team up and talk about harassing her. So it's hard to say if he was the one doing it or if it was this woman um, who was doing it, who came out, by the way, after she was murdered and gave an interview to the newspaper. And I was like, I cannot believe this person is giving an interview, you know, to try and like bank off of Amy's name in some way or just get her name out there. But even in the interview, she had to explain why Amy had a restraining order against her. So she's like, oh, it was just a misunderstanding. And I actually went to court with her to get in, in the restraining order. And this woman brought a lawyer and all this stuff. And Amy did not. And Amy actually prevailed in that case because it was so egregious. So at what point were at this point when she told you that he had broken into her house and you were pretty convinced that it was him as well? Is that was there a point where you started getting scared for her and thinking like this is a little beyond the normal way people act when they're upset when people break up oh absolutely it was at that breakup uh, or at that break-in i was absolutely afraid for her and i talked to her about it that day when we had lunch afterwards and i you know i asked her you know what you know we need we should do something and she's like well i don't have any actual proof and she did file a police report indicating she thought it was him but like she didn't have any actual specific um proof that it was him and I have to admit, when she called me and told me all this stuff, I was skeptical. I was like, really? You know, like this. Who would do that? <laughs> yeah. So when I came over then, I was like, oh, you know, this is a true story here. This is not. Because again, I, I, we were friends, but like, you know, we're just starting to become, you know, get to know people. And sometimes you think, oh, someone's exaggerating or whatever. But once I was over there, I was like, okay, I get this. And she was like, yeah, look at all the things that were turned upside down and the house and stuff. It was like just weird. And creepy, just kind of like him letting her know he was there and I think to kind of rattle her. Now, at this, prior to this, she did have a restraining order against him, correct? Yeah, she had one restraining order and then she filed for a second one, but she didn't end up following through with the second one. Do you know why she didn't follow through with the second one? I, I don't know specifically. Um, she had a bunch of files. Um, I saw the files that she had, um, but I know... I think the second one, she'd filed a restraining order once. I, I don't, I, I actually don't know the, the combination of things, but she filed a restraining order after he like beat her up um, one time and uh, she had a black eye and stuff. And then there was another time where the police came out and she had filed it, but then she had to go to court. And I think she was too scared to see him. I think that she just didn't want to like deal. Like she was very scared of him at the end of their relationship. And I think the thought of having to go to court to face him was just too much for her emotionally at the time. And that's something that's hard for people that are in these situations to file a restraining order and get one. You have to go through quite a lot of misery. This person that you're going to try and get a restraining order against, they have free reign to kind of like just make you miserable, like just go after you and all these things. And then once it's reached a certain point, now you have to go to court and convince the court to get a restraining order. They don't get punished for all the things they did to you already. And basically, the court's just like, oh, hey, stop doing this, you know, or we might arrest you. But a lot of times people who um, are abusive will just skirt the, the edge of what they are allowed to do. Um, I, I saw a case... Uh, 48 Hours has done a number of shows about Amy, and the first one they did, they have one coming out on the... On um, the 10th is Saturday, February. Um, the first episode, they had some interviews with other people at restraining orders and like the restraining orders, like you had to stay like a hundred feet away. And this person would be like 105 feet from them at all the time, you know, just like just skirting the, the rule. And that's okay because it's technically okay, but it's obviously not okay. Yeah, it's the the laws, especially when this happened to Amy, all of this stuff that comes out that restraining orders expire and all the trouble you have to go through. I personally think if someone's harassing me, why can't I just go to police and say, can you please make sure that they stay away from me? I, why do I have to give proof even if, if I feel scared? Yeah, well, because, you know, obviously people can also abuse that. Yeah, but, sure. you know, so it's hard. I... Um, I had a situation myself in 2021 where I had to file for a restraining order against a woman and I didn't get it. And I think the judge, you know, we went to court and everything and the judge took, and who 
probably been on the bench for a long time and seen a lot of men beat up women. And here I am getting, trying to get a restraining order against a woman. And who's very beautiful and articulate and so forth and has her lawyers and everything. And I think he had one look at it and he's kind of like, oh, you know, this pretty thing is causing you trouble. Like, I don't see this. And he's basically said, I, I don't see a need for this. He, yeah, I was trying to explain my case and I had witnesses. He's like, I don't think we need any witnesses and just hurry up and tell me what it is. Like he, it was so, it was so decided. Like I, I barely was able to get out the story. Couldn't bring any witnesses. And then like, he was like, not going to give it. And fortunately for me, she stopped because I think restraining orders are effective for people who have something to lose. And for people who like Garris, who he's, you know, doesn't have a lot of friends and he's, he's on the outskirts a little bit. Like they don't, you know, it's already illegal to hurt someone or murder them. Right. So having a restraining order, you know, it, it's for people that have something to lose that it's going to really actually work. Yeah, and that's exactly. You know. So this break in she had, you said, was around 2014. I think so. Yeah. And and then all of a sudden she didn't really hear from him anything about him for years. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. And at during that time, was it something that you just kind of both of you just kind of forgot about and thought it was finally over with? Well, forget about it because of the online harassment that was still happening and the stuff that was posting that was being posted she believed a lot of it was this woman but she also thought that it could be gareth too so it still would come up and it was causing her trouble especially when she got with um, drew carey um there was like kind of an uptick in posting because suddenly her profile was high again and she was in the public eye and on tv and stuff so um and she was on tv even before drew but this was just, there was more in the media about her and their relationship. And, uh, there was big uptick and, um, Drew tried to have an attorney stop some of the stuff, but because of the way, uh, the internet's regulated, you can't, you know, basically websites say like, well, we're not responsible for what people post and that's our policy. So you go deal with the people, but the people are anonymous and you can't find out who they are. So at the end of the day, like. They couldn't do anything even with all his attorneys and stuff. Yeah, which is which is scary. And that's that's another point that I have is that she had a little bit more research resources than the average woman does. Same with Taylor Swift. And they still can't make these people stop harassing them and stalking them, which is it just doesn't say much for any person that's going through this, that there's almost nothing you can do about it. That's the part that I think. That's the part of the story about Amy that really resonates with people and why this story has touched a lot of people. Because here's a woman who had everything. She had money and fame. She was trained in these things. She counseled other people about domestic violence. She helped a lot of people through this. She knew all the things you were supposed to do and she did all the things right. And this still happened to her. And I think that's what hits home. For a lot of people who are just in some small town somewhere that's going through a situation that makes it just all the more real. Because if it can happen to her, it can definitely happen to anyone. And that is very sobering. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by The Gross Room. Starting on February 9th to February 23rd, The Gross Room will be on sale for only $20 for the entire year of gross. You will have access to celebrity death dissections, high-profile death dissections, thousands of videos, photos, articles, all the way dating back to 2019. You definitely need to join this Valentine's Day. Please go to thegrossroom.com for more info and sign up. So she hasn't heard from him for for years, and then all of a sudden, about a month before her death, she goes to an award show, and she runs into him there. She didn't know he was going to be there. He just so happened to be a photographer that was there at the same time. What did she tell you about that interaction with him? So the next day after the show, I texted her, and I said, how was the show? This show, by the way, she went to is impromptu. She wasn't planning on going. At the last minute, someone invited her to go. And she's like, oh, okay, I'm going to go to the show. So I texted her. I said, how was the show? And she said, I have to call you. So she called me because now 
she was worried that he was monitoring her text messages and phone again. And um, she's like, you know, I ran into Gareth. I saw him. I thought he maybe would rec wouldn't recognize me or not see me because she was walking the red carpet and he was a photographer. But he basically just went nuts. He like ran over her, was like screaming at the top of his lungs, like, you ruined my life, you bitch, and all these things in the middle of a room full of like hundreds of people. And then like fell on the ground crying. It was in the fetal position. And she's like, she was really scared by it because it just showed how obsessive he was. And he was reciting texts that they had sent each other, like, you know years before like like verbatim text he's like what well, you said blah 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 and she's just like this is not healthy so she went into kind of like counselor mode and she's like i've got to de-escalate the situation i need to calm him down i need to get him to you know stop being you know uh, emotional right now because well i think it was embarrassing to her but also terrifying to her because here's a person who hasn't moved on she's like hey you know it's been eight years like yeah, I want you to, you know, go meet other people. Like, you know, I, I do not want to be with you. We cannot be together and you need to live your life. So I'm living my life and, you know, trying to like be the Amy that everyone knew, like, you know, be, be kind, firm and, you know, kind of let him down. She was terrified of him, but she wanted to be in control and deescalate the situation and kindly, you know, let him off. And. I think, you know, I've, I've read different, different, um, thoughts on that approach because in some cases I've read that when this happens and if you're nice to the person who's like being terrible to you, like it creates this opening where they think they have an opportunity again, um, because it's like, oh, you're being kind and nice and gentle with me and in, in my thing. And, you know, maybe like you will get back with me and it may, you know, especially if they're delusional as he was. You know, so it's hard to say, but she automatically went to that place, which is how she was. She was someone who would comfort you if you were going through a crisis. And eventually, you know, they, they parted ways. But after that, she started receiving uh, phone messages. There were flowers left in front of her door, like soon after that. So she was, she was terrified. I told her that she needed to get a gun. Because like you just don't know. She bought she didn't buy it. She said it, she would consider it. She didn't do it. She bought pepper spray, which was still in its unopened Amazon package on the day she was killed. Um, but but even so, you just, you know, with what happened, you're not gonna be armed all the time or carrying something in your hand at every moment when, you know, so so you know, it's hard. I don't think there was much that could have been done in that situation. But anyway, I asked her if she you know, could get a restraining order. And she's like, it's a, it, no, because like, he didn't threaten me. All he did was cry on the floor. And that's not in any way um, going to allow me to get a new restraining order. And that's what I think needs to change about restraining orders. I think you should be able to renew them. I think you should be able to, something happens and it's automatically restored, like probation type of situation. I don't think they need to last forever because there are people that do stop, but I think you need to be able to reactivate them right away. Would that have helped her? I don't know. We, we can't say with any certainty, but you know, that's something that I think could have could have happened. So when she went home yeah. the next day, she wrote herself an email. Can yes. can you tell us about what she wrote in that email? Um, yes, she in her email basically that she wrote to herself, she talked about running into Gareth and the things that he was doing. She didn't write everything, but she did tell me stuff that was not in the email, but it was pretty, uh, it was a pretty good overview of um, his behavior and the things he said to her and how scared she was. I mean, she basically said that she was scared. And I think that she w had written that email to herself as the basis for building a new case to get a new restraining order, because that's the kind of thing you need to do to get a restraining order. They don't take your words. They want to see evidence. So, Having pre-written emails from a time, you know, prior to when you're getting the restraining order, starting to establish a timeline and so forth. So I think she was, she wrote that as insurance to establish um, her feelings so that she could get a restraining order in the future. I'm assuming that because I didn't know she wrote an email until I, I found it after her death. So what, 
what did she what happened after that like he they were broken up for so many years that he didn't know where she lived and he didn't have her new phone number and all this stuff assuming so how did he how was he able to get a hold of her after he saw her well in unfortunately in this day and age finding out people's personal information is incredibly easy unless you are completely disconnected from the internet um there's, it's so easy for you to find out where someone lives. I mean, she bought a house, which was in her name, so it's a public record. So basically, you know, you could pay a website $40 and they'll give you every file that exists on you. So I think, and also for her business, her, her phone number is on her website. So this is the problem with our connected age. It is very hard to escape a stalker without changing your identity and, you know, not being who you are, which people obviously don't want to do too. So yeah, he found out, but I think that's, that's Google. And did she tell you that he was continuing to contact her? Yeah. She mentioned flowers on the door and he texted her and that she blocked him. Um, but then there was no additional communication because now he didn't have a way of communicating to her. And at that time, were you, do you have like a group of friends that know about this or was it strictly just you that she was talking to about this? Oh, no, she told everybody. She told absolutely everyone. So, so at that time, did you guys all get together or even just talk to each other and say, hey, like something's really not right here. This is really scary. Um, we talked, I mean, I think when I talked to other friends or mutual friends, we definitely talked about it. Um, I don't think that we saw it as abnormally scary. I think we're worried about it. Yeah, I guess we, I guess we were worried about it because he'd been gone for so long, was acting so weird. I think we thought it was weird, but again, no one thought it would happen. What would happen it would end up happening? That was outside the realm of consideration. We never talked about like, oh, he's going to like hide her house or kill and kill her. That just seemed just impossible. Okay, so a month after this this encounter that she had with Gareth. It's Valentine's Day night, and she goes out with her friends. Can you tell us about the last time you heard from her that day? Yeah, I talked to her around uh, 1 p.m. on Valentine's Day. Um, my uh, my second wife uh, was with her that morning. They had spent the morning together and uh, gone to breakfast and hung out. And she was she had just left and was driving home to my house. And, um, I called Amy or Amy called me and we just said, happy Valentine's day. I love you. I love you. And that was, you know, the extent of it. She told me she was going out that night to a burlesque show, but that was our, that was our last communication. So, uh, you know, the last words I said to her and the last words she said to me were, I love you, which you know, I guess is the best we can hope for. Yeah, that it is. It's, it's just. It's so sad to hear what happens next that so she went she goes out with her friends to a burlesque show. She comes home and Gareth is in her apartment waiting for her. She doesn't know it, obviously. And he murders her. When did you when did you first hear that something happened to her? So when I woke up um, the next day, which was a Sunday, I think, um, I noticed I had a whole bunch of text messages from her roommate, um, Mike Herman, and a bunch of missed calls, including from the police. And I was like, well, this is weird. So I looked at the text and Mike said, uh, Amy was assaulted last night. Um, uh, I'm at the police station. Um, they want to talk with you too. And so I was like, well, you know, I was upset, you know, I mean, but like, I didn't know what assaulted mean. I, I didn't know if like while she was out at the burlesque thing, something happened on the street or she got robbed or mugged or beat up or I know it like no information. So I called the number that was on to the police and they said, Hey, can you come down to Hollywood station this morning? And I said, okay. Um, but they didn't really let on to anything. So I, I, I wasn't like, I, I finished breakfast. I, you know, got dressed and I went down there and I, I wasn't thinking, you know, how, how absolutely terrible the situation would be. And then I asked, well, I did ask them where Amy was and they said she was in the hospital because I checked her phone location. Um, she and I started sharing locations on the day of the, um, 
the awards, the day after the awards thing, when she told me she ran into Gareth, um, she's, she had told me on that day, Hey, if anything happens to me, it's him. And I said, let's share our phone location so I can see where you are. So we started doing it that day. So I checked her location now after talking to the police to come down to the station and it said it was in her house. I was like, well, that's weird. So then I'm like, is her phone? They told me she was in the hospital. And that, so I was like, well, I guess her phone's still there. So then I was like, I, just, I couldn't, I didn't know what to make of any of it. So then I went to the police station and then they started asking me questions, you know, saying that she had been injured and was in the hospital. And, um, if I knew who could have, you know, or who, who could have done this and, you know, I, I, I really didn't know if, you know, someone just broke in or what happened or I, I didn't know, they didn't give me any information, but I did say there is one person that she said, if anything happens to me, it's him. And it's this ex-boyfriend she recently ran into. So I gave them his name. I only knew his name as Gareth. I didn't know his last name at all. Um, she'd only talked to him about him as Gareth. Didn't know his name. Uh, weirdly, he and I worked like next door to each other for a time. So like, but I didn't know this, um, cause I didn't know, I didn't even know what he looked like. So I contacted a mutual friend of ours. Her name's Marcy. I knew Marcy knew Gareth, you know, during their, when they were dating, I knew that. So I said, Hey, what's Gareth's last name? She sent it to me. I gave it to the police and that's how they got his name to start looking into him. That's, that's interesting. So you're at the police station and they didn't really give you any details about what happened. So maybe if you had heard exactly with the circumstance, you would have been more like, okay, it was definitely this. Well, when you're being, in, when they're investigating, I mean, they don't know. Yeah. You know, they, you know, I'm a suspect. Everyone's a suspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they told me all that. And then they said, okay, go sit out in the lobby. And, and Mike was there, a roommate was there. And he would, he was very agitated, very upset. And I was like, you know, how, you know, how, what happened? And he just, he's like, uh, he just kept saying it was really, it's really bad. It's really bad. It's really bad. But like, he didn't tell me anything either. He was just so like beside himself. So then the police called us back in to, um, the room together. And they said, um, we have some really bad news and that, uh, Amy passed away. Um, and they, they told us that together and, um, and then when I was leaving, they gave me their cards. And then I noticed that there it was, I was talking to homicide. So but they knew already that she, she died hours before my interview, but they told us post interview that she had died. Yeah. That I was going to say, cause I thought that she just died a couple hours of within getting to the hospital. So your friend that was there, that's his, that was her roommate. He, yes. he had stumbled, he found her, right? like that is that why he was saying she was really well, bad well i mean he, he saw her on the ground i mean he was there when it was happening so and that that you know so and he he had gone to get help and so forth so um but then he saw her on the ground so that's when he you know i guess made his evaluation yeah and that's why he was so traumatized and couldn't really speak about it because he just was so shocked and yeah, I mean, and it, it, it was it was an alarming scene. I mean, in in the the trial of Gareth, I mean, they showed the body cam and stuff. You can see her on the ground. It's it's pretty disturbing. So, and I know that she was she was engaged to Drew Carey, and she was they apparently they had some kind of a call or a text that they were going to get together to try to start talking again or become friends again. So clearly, they were on pretty good terms. Do, how, who told him about what happened to her? Well, so I'm going to back up and just talk about them getting back together and being on good terms. They had just started to like reconnect, you know, they had their breakup and they were, you know, they weren't on terrible terms. I think they really both still loved each other, but it just wasn't working out. But then I, they weren't talking too much. And then this reconnection meeting, interestingly, she didn't tell me about it because um, her other friends were like, oh, yeah, she was doing it, but she wouldn't tell you because you would try and talk her out of it. And I love Drew. Like, he's great. But, like, she would always get back with people that she broke up with. And I was always trying to talk her out of doing that. I'm like, you already went through this, and you know why you broke up. You need to, you know, stay broken up. But 
I did like Drew. He was great. I always said he was the best person that she dated that I that I, that I met. Um, so she had told me. So I only found that out later. I was like, oh, interesting. I mean, that sounds accurate. Um, but I, uh, after I left the police station, I told Marcy. The police told me not to tell, not to let it go too far because they wanted to tell her parents in person, and they were going to send police to tell her parents. And I gave them. Her parents' information, but her parents were not home at the time. They were at um, their her brother's house, like um, house sitting. So they couldn't find her parents for a while. So they said, you know, until her parents are informed, don't post about it online or whatever. So I, I, but I, I started calling people, and I told everyone just to keep it on the the DL for now. Um, I told Marcy first because she's the one that gave me Gareth's um, information. And then after that, I kind of went down all her close friends, including Drew. So I, I'm the one that called Drew and, and, and told him. So, um, and, and everyone's reaction was universally just disbelief and, and, you know, everyone was extremely upset. But I made that call. I made, I made that call 30 times probably. And uh, it was, then it never got easier. And if people were driving, I'm like, you need to pull over your car and stop before we talk. And they're like, no, why? You know, I'm like, no do that so they would do that and i tell them and then you know they would have pretty significant severe emotional reactions because it's it's huge and horrible and unbelievable um, and did most people you knew that were close with her that knew the whole situation with gareth were they was everybody just like we know it's him yeah 100 percent. yeah everybody was was absolutely positive it was him and how long after you found out about her murder were you made aware that Gareth was arrested? Um, well, I was in uh, contact with the police, so it was pretty soon. I think it was like the next day um, they told me. It was it was soon after it happened. Um, so I was talking to the police constantly. So I had gone to, to do my interview, um, but then I was sending information to them because people had different um, you know, bits of data that I thought would be useful because again, we didn't know for sure it was Gareth, but, um, we were just sending more information, including I was put in contact through a mutual friend of a woman who was supposed to go on a date with Gareth because we were just talking about it being Gareth. And, and by the way, uh, this was all after, um, once her parents were informed, um, soon thereafter TMZ broke the news. We, I had a bunch of people over my house and we were just talking about it. But, and then it was like everywhere. Um, and what, how did, how did they finally get a hold of her parents? Um, I, I don't exactly know. They had phone calls and stuff, but they eventually met up with their parents. I feel like it was late, like 11 PM at night. Oh God. Or the time that they gave them the information. So after that, we let more people know about it. And then someone came forward to say that they were supposed to go on a date with Gareth that night. And he had been texting them before and after what happened. And so, you know, I put them in contact and they, they ended up ultimately testifying in court about that. Um, so, but I, I, everyone who had information, anyone who knew Gareth, anyone who knew anything that she had said about it or anyone who had been at the awards ceremony there too, I was putting in contact with the police. And so I was always, I was in contact with them constantly, which is how they told me um, soon after. Um, and did they want you, did you have to testify in court because you knew so much information? I did testify in court, but the information, my testimony was pretty limited and it was limited to uh, the email I found on her, um, uh, on Gmail uh, to herself about being afraid of Gareth which was apparently a pretty instrumental piece of um, evidence about her state of mind. Because at one point, the defense was saying that she invited, she wanted to meet up with him. At the preliminary hearing, they changed the theory all the time as to what happened. But preliminary hearing, they implied that she invited him over to like hang out and she wanted to meet up with him. And this was a whole arranged situation. Um, but when I found that email, that pretty much blew that story out of the water. And then they had a new story and, and then a new story. And then, you know, ultimately they didn't even offer a defense in, in, in court when they were called to like present their defense, they just rested, which was. It, well, what, like, I was just going to say, who cares? Like if she said, come over, let's talk and make up that who cares? 
I mean, she he well, killed her still. I think they were looking for a way to like say it wasn't premeditated, and probably we're going to say that she started it. And it was an accident. You know, who knows? I don't know what they're lying, but that's that's the most likely line. So I know that you have said that that you were you were shocked that they didn't really present anything. I mean, really, what could they have? What were they going to present? It was there was so much evidence against him, but he was he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So now he's sentenced and everything. Has he ever admitted to killing her or ever expressed any remorse for his actions? No. What? Why? Why do you think that is? Like, what? Do, what does he have to lose at this point? He just doesn't want to give anyone the satisfaction of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that he's he's not a, he's not a good person. I think he is a selfish narcissist, and I think that he probably, in his mind, feels like this was a justified action. I think that he's he's just not a good person. If you talk to any person, if you're just sitting around the dinner table talking about the death penalty and everything, I think every single person has an opinion. They're for it. They're against it or whatever. Until it actually happens to them that one of their close family members or friends are are killed in, in such a heinous way, has this, has this experience changed the way you think about that? Are you satisfied with his conviction of life in prison without the possibility of parole or would you be okay if he had the death penalty too well i live in california and in california the death penalty allegedly exists but it's not real someone who gets sentenced to death in california which i don't think has happened in a long time never get puts to death never get put to death i don't i don't know when the last time they did it was the 70s maybe so in California, the death penalty is basically the same as life in prison without parole, except it actually ends up costing more because they go through all these appeals and so forth. So in California, life in prison without parole is the best you can get in terms of a punishment, which I, I accept. If the death penalty here was more like, say, Florida or Alabama or whatever, where like, you know, they do it pretty fast. I would have gone for that, and I would absolutely support this. And I actually got in an argument with someone I met at a party who's actually a death penalty, uh, like um, an advocate for people who are on death row to like stop them from being executed. I got in a huge argument with her, but you know, no way to change my position. I think that you know, sometimes some people just don't need to be part of our society, and I don't see any reason for us to just have them in a cell forever because, you know, we're, society is done with them. They have they've basically like invalidated their permission to be part of this world. And so I, I, I support the death penalty if it actually was worked. The real. It should. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's some countries where like, you know, you get sentenced to death, they take you out of the court, shoot you. I don't believe in that. You know, that does happen. Um, you know, I believe that if there is a death penalty, there should be an appeal phase. And certainly people who are not guilty get sentenced to death sometimes. But there are some times where it's just there's no question. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. I think a lot of times people will say that, th that you know, they're human and they don't deserve this. But I'm, I think about the victims all the time and how horrible. It's not even just Amy. It's it's you guys. It's her parents. It's everyone that knew her. It 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 affected and to think how she was terrorized for years. I mean, she was so young when she died and years of her life were, were she was scared of someone. It, why did, why does he deserve to, to live? And she didn't, it's just not, it's not fair. Um, I know that a lot of yourself and some of her friends are putting together, they're trying to bring changes in maybe through Congress with the criminal justice system to try to change some of these rules that have to do with stalking and, have to do with restraining orders and things like that. Um, do you, what, it, were you involved with that change.org petition or one of Amy's friends was? That's something that you guys are still trying to, to give and where are you at with that? Yeah, so um, there were two different petitions and then the people who were doing that kind of um, got together and kind of like, you know, worked together as a team and then I get involved with them too. They were, I don't know how many signatures it was in the. There's a lot, like 300,000, I think I saw. It was over 500,000, actually. So um, in 2020, like right after she died, um, 
we were very active working on this. We were making phone calls. We were getting meetings with state senators. We had, uh, we were trying to get with Nancy Pelosi's office. Um, 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 we did a lot of work in trying to get to people about changing these laws. And what happened was COVID happened and then everyone, everything derailed. So we were working pretty hard at it and COVID ended up derailing us. And to be honest, we have not gone back to that. We, we had had so many meetings. Um, but one thing that did happen is in California in, I think it was September of 2020, uh, it might've been 20, I think it was September of 2020. Uh, there were some new anti-stalking uh, legislation passed. And I don't know if we had influence over that. I like to think that we did. Um, but some of that made uh, internet stalking uh, a crime that was uh, suitable for getting restraining orders, and that, which was something that was happening to her a lot too. Because before, that actually would not qualify. If you were posting things online, and doing all these types of harassment campaigns online that didn't qualify for a restraining order because it wasn't a threat of death. So um, that did get passed, um, and which was something I cited when I was trying to get my restraining order, but apparently it didn't happen. But um, so that was one of the, one of a bunch of things that we wanted to do. But the other things were to be able to renew restraining orders more easily if you already had one, um, and basically set no expiration for them. Yeah, if you, you know, if something happened, it would be like put back in force. That was one of the biggest things that we wanted to do. But yeah, it we, just we, sounds we, silly. Like, I feel like if you wanted, it would make more sense to make the person go and get the restore, restraining order taken away rather than it right. expiring. Why would it ever go bad if? All of the work is on the victim. All of the work. Like, the victim takes all the abuse and then they have to go through all of the paperwork gather all of the evidence and make their case to court that they deserve this. And the, the person that's abusing them literally has to do nothing. I mean, you know, except deny it. They, they just don't, no burden is placed upon them. And they're the ones that are actually committing this. Tell us about the memorial you're trying to create for Amy's legacy. So right after she... Uh, died, um, and after I got back from the funeral, um, we were talking. I was, I was talking to our parents at the funeral, and, and um, it was a big funeral. There were like over 700 people came. It was an open casket funeral, and our parents had told me that they never would have done this funeral the way it is. They would have had her cremated because they would have assumed she would have wanted to be cremated. However, two weeks prior, she called them and said that if I ever die, I want to have an open casket funeral and I want to have an elaborate headstone and give them all these like specifications. So they were kind of like, she called us a couple of weeks ago and told us how to do all this. And now, oh so my God, that just it. gave me the chills. That's so sad. And the, but the cemetery, which is close to her parents' house, they don't allow elaborate headstones. So then I was like, well, I'm like, I, you know, I, I think she would have liked to be buried in California, Hollywood forever, which was a cemetery, you know, where all the famous people are and she, you know, a place that she'd like to go to. So in fact, the, the night after she died, um, on a sign near Hollywood forever, you know, her image, it was actually, um, a, a photograph I had taken of her was turned into street art and, um, spray painted on a sign outside of Hollywood forever, just her face, basically her, her like portrait, um, which kind of like, I think was, you know, um, fitting, uh, Dave Navarro, um, did that actually. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, so I think everyone agreed, would agree that like Hollywood forever would be a good place for her. So then after I came back, I was like, I went to Hollywood forever and met with them. Um, and we talked about like, you know, what it would take to get a plot and, build a memorial, but not actually have someone buried there. And they said, yes. So I, I started working on this kind of project where I wanted to build a bronze statue of Amy, um, but also with a kind of memorial plaque as a, um, 
memorial for victims of domestic violence. Because there isn't really one in America. There's a little this and a little that. But I wanted to make something that was just like very grand, very impressive, something that just made it, you know, just put it in your face a little more. But it would be Amy uh, in a bronze statue in the uh, guise of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, um, and basically have a memorial plaque. Uh, two memorial plaques, one to her and then one to victims of domestic violence in, you know, worldwide or, or in America. I'm not sure. I'm working on the text for that. So anyway, and then I started raising money for it. It's going to take a lot of money. Um, making a bronze statue is not cheap, but the most expensive thing is actually the plots in um, Hollywood Forever. So, you know, we're still to deal. But we've been raising money. People have been donating and just, I just, I'm hoping to this week shoot a video just to talk about it more. But my, the strategy is to make a um, 3D model of her and the monument. Um, I actually have 3D scans of her that were done while she was alive. Um, I know some people have a studio that they specialize in making models for films and so forth. So she went and got scanned. So we have her three-dimensional image. We just need to build the rest of the body. That would all be built 3D. And then it would be printed, 3D printed using a printer that makes wax. So... It wouldn't be life-size because there are limits of the height of memorials there, but it'd be like four and a half feet high to be put on a, um, a granite base, printed in wax, and then cast in bronze, and then um, put in place. And my feeling is I'm just going to keep raising money until I get there. Um, I'm, it's kind of like my mission, so that's, um, so, so that's something I'm working on. Where can people go to donate to this statue? Uh, there's a website. It's called Amy Harwick Memorial, and that tells you about the project. Um, there's a GoFundMe link on there, which is where we're taking money, but we also take checks and stuff like that. But that's kind of, uh, how we're doing it right now. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of something I'm focusing on. I, I really focused on it in 2020, uh, one, and then just gearing up for the trial and everything. It's just been, a, a, I don't know, it's, it's been intense. So. I kind of like just let it go for a while. And now this year I'm going to really push through. Yeah. I mean, you've been through a lot. It's um, your best friend dies. And then the pandemic happened the, the next, what, two weeks later or something. It just all that craziness. So, yeah. and then the trial, it's just like, give yourself a break. You're, <laughs> you're doing good. Yeah. You're doing a good thing for her. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I want to finish it because I just want it finished. Also, I want, I want it, I want it to, I want to see it. So I have all the vendors lined up and everything. I just need to always need to raise the money and get it made. But um, yeah, I, I want to finish it because I just, I want a place for people here in California um, and her friends that can go and, you know, pay a little homage or what have you. Um, and some of our friends do go out to Pennsylvania to her, her grave there um, too. So, Well, thanks so much for sharing her story with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to let us know? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I think I, you've told I, I, us. You've told us so much. You, this was. This is great, and I think it's really good for people to listen to this, even if they're in the situation themselves. That this is this happened to a real person, or if they have friends or family in this situation. Do you yeah, have any I've, advice I've, that you'd offer to people that have friends that are in this situation? Yeah, I mean, these types of situations are. They're more serious than you think. When your friend's going through a thing and they're, they maybe are telling you a little of this and that, they're probably not telling you all of how bad it is. And that is, I think, how friends can sometimes overlook when people are in bad situations and not see it as what an emergency it probably is. Because I think a lot of times people in abusive relationships underplay the seriousness of their fear, the seriousness of the situation to their friends, because they know better. They know they're in a bad situation. And it's maybe also a little self-preservation that they're, they're just trying to convince themselves it's maybe not as bad as they think. But I think that if you know someone's in an abusive relationship, being able to offer them help in the form of helping them set up ways to escape that situation by like, you can come stay with me. I can help you get new bank accounts, um, because financial control, obviously in a lot of 
domestic situations is a big part of the problem too. That was not in Amy's case, not case, but financial control often is what keeps people stuck. They have kids and this person has all the money control or tied up and they don't know how to get out of it. It's, it's, it's a difficult situation, but there are, um, helplines for this. And uh, on the Amy Harwick Memorial website, I have all the numbers there and I totally don't remember them off the top of my head, but maybe you can add them somewhere. But there are hotlines for people who are in abusive situations that they can call and talk to professionals and deal with these types of situations all the time that can provide counseling, advice, and suggestions on how to deal with their specific circumstance. And I think reaching out for professional help is the best thing to do. You can reach out for, you should reach out to your friends, but your friends should be able to tell you about getting some professional assistance too, because I think it's important to, um, to have that backup. But all that said, your friends are your first line of defense. Your friends are the people that can shelter you right away. The friends, uh, your friends are the people that can, um, help you, you know, get on your own feet and away from the person that's doing this. And also the police can't save you. The police are not, the police come to investigate after a crime. They don't come before the crime. So I think it's also important to, you know, learn some self-defense class and, and, and just always be prepared and always have one eye open when you're in these types of situations. You don't want to live your life in fear. And Amy would not have done that. She did not live her life in fear. She lived her life to the, to the fullest because if she did, that would be another win for him that he could abuse her and then she would just be miserable and like hide from the world. You don't want to do that. But at the same time, you do want to be mindful of your surroundings, be mindful of, you know, possible things that can happen and just always be prepared because you just don't know. Well, thanks for sharing that. And again, thanks so much for talking with us about this. We know it's hard for you to talk about this, but it's been really informative. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Mother Knows Death. As a reminder, my training is as a pathologist assistant. I have a master's level education and specialize in anatomy and pathology education. I am not a doctor and I have not diagnosed or treated anyone, dead or alive, without the assistance of a licensed medical doctor. This show, my website, and social media accounts are designed to educate and inform people based on my experience working in pathology so they can make healthier decisions regarding their life and well-being. Always remember that science is changing every day and the opinions expressed in this episode are based on my knowledge of those subjects at the time of publication. If you are having a medical problem, have a medical question, or are having a medical emergency, please contact your physician or visit an urgent care center, emergency room, or hospital. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Mother Knows Death on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks.